Good morning, Graham. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Timothy, where we'll pick up from where we were last week. I would like to read our text first, 2 Timothy 2, 20-26. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in that seat in front of you underneath there, and it's page 996, 996. I hope you have the Bible open this morning to consider what God has to say to us. 2 Timothy 2, verse 20. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood, clay, some for honorable use, and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. For you know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. For those of you who have been out of school for a while, you may remember how things went when you had to pick a team for kickball or dodgeball or basketball. I assume that some of you young people here uh, this morning uh, do that as well, whether it's in the gym class or on the playground. That can actually be a very unpleasant experience for some individuals. At At least the way we did it, you had two captains, as it were, two people who were choosing teams. Uh, They knew who they wanted and who they didn't want on their team. They would begin selecting these teammates, and it was obvious that they were picking the most gifted, uh, the most talented players, uh, those who, of course, were strong and were fast and good. And there were always a couple of kids at the end that no one really wanted. They got picked last, or not even picked at all. It was just that they joined the team, and the unspoken was, I guess, that we're stuck with having you on the team. Let me ask you, who would you pick to impact the world for the gospel? Who would you want to join the Grand Church team, as it were? Would you choose special people, the most gifted? Certainly, we would want people that are attractive, right? The ones that have the most dramatic testimony, you know, where they they were converted in a marvelous way, certainly God will use those people. High-profile people, popular people, they have a big crowd that's already following them. Or maybe you would choose people that have power and influence uh, they're, they're the kind of people that would be highly intelligent. And of course, we'd want rich people. Because if we have rich people and they give a lot of money, then of course we can send out many missionaries. When you look through the Bible, there is this really crazy mix of people that God has chosen to be in his family. 
I suspect that most of you would not choose those people to be a part of your church team. Moses, he's a mumbler. He doesn't talk well. Rahab, she's a prostitute. Mephibosheth, he's crippled. And then you move to the New Testament and you have Peter, this lowly fisherman. Fishermen were not popular then, I don't think, in the sense that they were a prized labor. They had a loud mouth. Or would you pick a crooked IRS agent? Would you pick Matthew? Or the Apostle Paul? He's a terrorist. He's behind the killing of multiple Christians. Well, the saying is true, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your church family. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one could boast before him. See, you and I are created and brought into God's family in order to serve the creator. God's intentions is that he would choose us to accomplish his mission and his plan. Now, God doesn't need us. Right? He does not need us, but his plan and method is to work through his people to accomplish his will. And our text this morning lays down this foundational truth for, God, for who God uses in his kingdom and in his church. And God uses people of character. God uses people of character. Character is what really matters. You can be gifted. You can be smart, you can be good-looking, and yet if you lack what is essential to being character, you lack character which is essential, then, then the, the involvement and the service of God's kingdom is ineffective. So last week we looked at, how do we get the word right? And, and Paul writing to Timothy, and this morning we're going to look at how do we get character right? How do we get character right? So we got to keep from being contaminated. Keep from being contaminated. We see this in verse 20 and 21. You might have, you, you certainly have heard if you've been listening at all to the church announcements lately about this progressive dinner and uh, it's happening in a couple of weeks and you go to people's homes and you enjoy uh, a good meal together. And let, let's just say that a group of you get together and you, you land at someone's house and you sit down to a nice decorated table, fancy uh, plates, expensive silverware, and, and they have prepared your favorite food. I mean, you, you're, you're just looking forward to this. And then all of a sudden, the host walks out with a spoon in one hand and then a filthy, dirty, grimy garbage can in the other. And all the food is in that garbage can. And they begin to dish it out on the table. All of a sudden, I don't think we're all that hungry. Uh, it's no longer interesting to be a part of this group. And uh, that's not the kind of container, of course, that you use to serve your guest. Somehow, most of us would walk away hungry. We, we just would not participate. 
Well, in verse 20, Paul sets up this illustration we can all understand. He's talking about a great house, a wealthy house. And there are two kinds of vessels or containers in every house. One type of container, of course, is used for honorable purposes. And another is used for dishonorable purposes. The gold and silver vessels that he talks about here, are like, they're like the fine china and the expensive silverware. And you would use these at dinner parties and and when you have your special guest over to your house. And then you have these other type of vessels, wood and, and clay, as he describes it. And they're, and they're really like the trash cans, the, the, the garbage cans. And they, they not only took out maybe food waste, but they would actually take out human waste. It's quite a contrast. These containers, of course, represent two kinds of people in the church. We have faithful teachers like Timothy that we see here in the text, and they live according to the gospel. And then we have these false teachers that we heard about last week, Hymenaeus and Philetus, and they're living contrary to the gospel. They're not teaching the truth. And the obvious conclusion here is, is it is desirable for you and I to be honorable vessels, to, to to, to be so cleaned up that we can hold a nice cup of coffee rather than a dishonorable one who's a wastebasket full of trash. So in order for us to be an honorable vessel, he says, useful to the master, we have to cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable. We have to cleanse ourselves from what is... If we want to be useful to God, there has to be a cleansing, as it were. And in our context, there are two areas that he's deeply concerned about. One is your life, and the second is your doctrine, what you, what you believe. We have, we have to cleanse ourselves from corrupt teaching or errors in our, in our understanding or our unholy living. You remember what he said last week in verse 19? He says that those who are genuine believers depart from sin. This is, this is the course for the Christian, right? We are to turn away from a life of sin. We are continually growing to being the people God wants us to be. And Paul already had told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention to your life and to your teaching. See, God does want clean vessels he can use. This doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, that's not, what he's, that's not what he's calling us to at this stage. But what, what he's talking about is getting rid of those falsehoods in our mind. That, that's, that wrong thinking or that wickedness that often surfaces in our hearts. We're called to purify our beliefs and our actions. We're all susceptible, right, to being contaminated. We are surrounded by uh, false teaching, all kinds of things that contaminate us. We're living in a world that is continually pressing in on us and uh, desires to engage in worldly living that, that leads us to kind of the characters that become damaged. There's a constant war going on. We have to continue to say no to what is wrong and then, of course, yes to what is right. And it, it's, so, it's, it's not just the externals, it's the internals. It's what we're thinking inside of our minds. We have to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We have to yield to the Holy Spirit when he's speaking to us. 
We need to make every effort to remove what is unclean in our hearts and lives. We're talking about personal holiness. That's what he's addressing. He wants us to be sanctified. He wants us to be a holy people. To be useful to God, we have to do some purging and some changing to be more and more like Christ. Now, I think it's helpful. We, we hear all that, and, and we have to think, well, practically, what are we talking about here? Say, what, what, what do I need to change? What, what, what in my heart and in my life do I, the kind of person that I need to be? Everyone sins. Everyone has wrong thinking and errors in what they believe. But what actually might disqualify you from being useful to God? That's what we're concerned about, right? I want to be used of God. Well, what would disqualify me from being useful to God? Well, let me give you some examples for us to think through. Let's say a man is having a bad day at work, and he, he loses his cool. He gets angry, and he says some things that he shouldn't have ever said. That act alone does not automatically disqualify him. But if this man has this pattern of over and over blowing up at work, blowing up at his co-workers, blowing up at his boss, throwing whatever around because he's upset, now we have a problem. His anger is affecting his testimony and his usefulness for God. So one of, all of us at times feel guilty, right? We, we have things we struggle with over and over again, and, and we're concerned, I don't want to be disqualified from what God has called me to do. Or maybe a woman, she's, she's got some neighbor friends, she's some people in the community, and, but she's got this habit that she's, she's always complaining, or she's always talking gossip about other people. In many of her conversations, she just tends to run people down, and she's grumbling persistently about her circumstances. That woman is doing damage to her usefulness for God. It's not that we don't at times grumble. It's not at the times we don't complain. But if that's the persistent behavior, all of a sudden a person becomes disqualified. Or maybe you're a young person and you, you regularly have this self-righteous attitude. You Internally, you, you think less of others. You, you, you believe in your heart that, that uh, you're better than they are. And, they, and, and therefore, as a result of that, you mistreat and you look down on people. That persistent, self-righteous attitude doesn't make you very useful for the kingdom. That's what, that's what I think uh, Paul is talking about here. The, the, those would be examples of that. Let me give you one more. Let, let's say you've been wronged. You've been hurt. Someone has done something to you that cuts deep. They've sinned against you. And your mind begins to race with wrong thoughts of revenge. I must get back. You begin to wrongly believe, you know what? They don't deserve forgiveness. And you mull it over and over in your mind, and then all of a sudden your heart becomes bitter. It's no longer just a thought, a random thought, but you, you're grossly upset because of what, uh, of what they've done to you. Bitterness destroys us and our usefulness for God. See, it's not just the externals, it's also the internals. I have to guard my heart. Like one author said, bitterness is the poison you drink, hoping the other person will die. You see, these are really character issues that we're describing here. A persistent pattern of behavior is a character issue. It marks a person's life. 
Dirty vessels are not useful to the master. Personal holiness means we have to cleanse ourselves from these dishonorable thoughts and behaviors. We have to cleanse ourselves and grow in holiness. These false teachers, of course, were marked by ungodliness, which disqualified them from being useful vessels for God. So if you're a believer here this morning, I trust you sit here and, and, and your thoughts are, I want to be used of God. You, you want his approval of your life. There's no higher honor than to be an instrument in the hand of God. In the book of Acts, the Lord said to Paul, you are my chosen instrument, my chosen vessel to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. And that same gospel has been given to us. And God wants to use honorable vessels to carry it to a lost and dying world. So in order to not be disqualified by these character issues, Paul gives us some help in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul's great fear is that somehow there would be something in his life that would disqualify him. That he would be useless to the master. And so he had to discipline his body. The spiritual disciplines maybe be helpful to think about. Those things in which help me stay on track for what I ought to be doing so I don't become disqualified for the ministry. But you may be thinking, boy, all this holiness talk and self-discipline sounds like a lot of hard work. I mean, what, what exactly is the payoff here? Well, when we're cleansing ourselves, verse 21 says, God prepares us for every good work. So God is in the business of when we cleanse ourselves from what we ought not to be doing, he prepares us then to be able to serve him, to, to, to be able to uh, do every good work. He empowers you to do what maybe you can't do by yourself. I mean, do you ever sit there at times and think, boy, I am completely inadequate for what's happening here. I don't have the skills. I don't have the abilities that, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And so you sit there and you think about, I've got to share the truth of the gospel with my coworker or my neighbor. I don't know how to do that. Some of you are sitting here going, I don't even know how to talk to them. I don't even know where to start. What, what, what do I do? Or, or maybe some of you in a completely different realm and you're sitting there and you're having problems with your kid and, and you've tried everything and nothing seems to be working and you're just beside yourself and you say, what do I do? I feel completely adequate. I don't know how to press forward. Well, it seems that though what Paul is telling us here this morning is that even when we feel inadequate for whatever it is, when we give ourselves to God, he prepares us for those situations that we couldn't do in and of ourselves. He enables us to do the good work that he's called us to do. But we have to have vessels that are prepared to do that. God prepares us for every work, every good work. Uh, when, we, when we give ourselves to God, there's this beautiful testimony that we see in a couple people in the, in the scriptures. 
Uh, John Mark was known as a man who wasn't faithful to, at one point, and then he became faithful. And this is what Paul said of him. Get Mark, bring him with you, for he is very useful for me for ministry. That's the kind of testimony we want, right? Or Philemon, Onesimus, he was, he was at one point useless, he says here. Uh, formerly Onesimus was useless to you, but now he indeed is useful to you and to me. That, that, that's the picture that we see. When we cleanse ourselves, God makes us useful, useful for him. The practice of holiness leads people of character that are useful to the master. So the second thing we have to look at here is pursue godly traits. And so if character is so important, then we have to pursue these godly traits. And so Paul now expands on some practical steps that we need to be, for, to be useful, a useful vessel, a person of character. He's going to tell us to run away from certain things, and he's going to tell us what to run to. So do two basic commands, real simple, flee and pursue, flee and pursue. This is a fundamental approach to the Christian life. If you, if you want to deal with sin in your life, there's always this process of the scriptures. Put off what is sinful, but don't stop there. You have to put on what, what is righteous. And so put off unrighteousness. And so he's telling us right here, you've got to flee certain things in your life. You've got to pursue certain things in your life. When we do both of those, we're on the path to building character. So number one, he says, flee youthful passions. Flee youthful passions. There are some traits that are common to youth, right? I mean, there's just, there, there's a certain set of traits that are common. He's not, we're not picking on young people here this morning uh, at all. Uh, we're not singling them out. Uh, but, but Paul does want to tell Timothy to avoid some pitfalls that are common in youth. Uh, you, uh, some of you may be wondering, what exactly is youth? Because that seems to be a relative term. Keep in mind, Timothy is around 40 years of age. So even if you're over 40, these still apply to you, by the way. Uh, but but there, there's this range of, of youth that he's talking about. We're not just talking about young children. We're not talking about teenagers. We're talking about 20s and 30s, and maybe even into the 40s. And when you hear this phrase, youthful passions, we, we automatically think, well, we're talking about sexual sin, right? Well, it, it does include that, but the phrase includes far more than that. We're really talking about the kind of traits that are expressed in youthful immaturity, immaturity, the lust for money and greed. I, I, I want, give me more, I want more. The lust for power and control, headstrong stubbornness and impatience. I want what I want and I want it now or arrogance and, and harshness. Uh, you, you always have to be right. You always have to win. That, I tell you what, that's something I've struggled with for all my life. It, I always had to be right. In an argument, I had to be right. Didn't, it didn't matter. Resisting authority. You're not going to tell me what to do. I mean, this is the American area of pride that we have, right? You're not going to tell me what to do. I run my own life, right? My, that, that is youthful immaturity. We prize our independence. I do it myself. I don't need anybody. Or the preoccupation uh, with myself. I can't see beyond myself. Every conversation is about me. These are the kind of youthful things he's saying, we need to flee from those things. Those things are not helpful at all. It's not going to make a difference for the kingdom. 
I mean, does anybody struggle with those? Paul says to flee like a fugitive from these behaviors. Run far away from these childish character flaws. Flee evil desires of youth. Grow up and act like a mature spiritual adult. And instead, number two, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Faith, love, and peace. These are the qualities, of course, that we're supposed to chase after. It's, it's not just about saying no to sin. It's, it's about saying yes to Jesus. We, have these, we see these four vir- virtues as really the pursuit of God. That, that, that's what we're talking about here. He's uh, the kind of person that God wants you to be. When you exhibit these, let's consider a little closer the implication of these particular four character qualities. Run after righteousness. We're talking about right conduct, doing the right thing even when you don't feel like it. You'd like to give someone a piece of your mind, but instead, you don't. You resist that. You hold your tongue. And then you wisely respond for the good of the other person. You do the right thing. Here's a person here that's righteous. Their their whole aim is, I I just want to please God. And everything that I say and do, I want to please God. I want to do what's right. Or follow hard after faith. Follow hard after faith. When life is hard, will you trust God? Will you still obey out of an act of faith? A a person who uh, follows hard after faith is one who is faithful. They're trustworthy. You you can rely on on this individual. They they press forward because they know God is good and everything he does is for our good. Long after love. Long after love. Loving others and especially those that are hard to love are one of the most difficult areas I think God calls us to do. It's it's, it's really the defining uh, characteristic of God's people. Just think of, of what Timothy was up against with these false teachers. I mean, the, the, what, what a great burden to have somebody so pushing back against you all the time. Well, again, Paul helps us out elsewhere. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, listen to this. This is, this is beyond ourselves, I think, in every, every way, but this is what we're called to do. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, it is not boastful, it is not arrogant, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not irritable, it does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. If Timothy responds in love to others in this way, this is going to make all the difference in the world. Even the world will look in and go, look at how Timothy is responding. And so we have to put off the childish immaturity and we have to pursue love. Lastly, push towards peace. Push towards peace. How do, you, how do we do at making harmony with others? Are we a person that stirs up conflict or are we a person that is a peacemaker? In Romans 14, 19, it says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace, and for mutual upbuilding. You and I need to be people that push for peace, push towards peace. If if you're pursuing hard after these godly traits, we will find ourselves useful to the master. God uses people that exercise these type of characteristics, and it builds character. It brings glory to God. 
See, it is not about charisma. It is not, uh, it's about your your effectiveness is rooted in your character. It, It is so easy just to sit here and esteem those who are popular and are gifted and are powerful. But God uses people of character. Be impressed with godliness and good character. Now the key to living this out to living this out is with godly mature friends with godly mature friends if we're going to expect to exercise these character traits it's with godly mature friends our text says to pursue these godly traits with those who call upon the lord from a pure heart the christian life of holiness takes community effort if you think you can live the christian life by yourself you have bought a lie and you are lying to yourself We can't do it alone. We could easily argue from the scriptures that godly friends are necessary for growth in holiness. Proverbs 18.1 One who isolates himself pursues selfish desires. He rebels against all sound wisdom. Isolation from the body of Christ, isolation from good, mature, godly friends is never the answer to building godly traits. We, we must have others encouraging us. So let me ask you, who is encouraging you? Who is actually pushing you towards Christ-likeness? I mean, that's a very intentional type of relationship where I care about you naturally in, in an important way. Who keeps you in check? Who keeps you accountable? If you think you're doing it all by yourself, that's a recipe for failure. The core of the Christian life is relational. Fundamentally, we're called just, you want to get anything out of of Christianity, love God and love others. Forget about all the other peripheral issues. That's fundamentally who we are as, as believers. Love God and love others. Are we involved in other people's lives? So that means we have to have godly friends. Friends that will speak truth into our lives. Not just friends who agree with us. Not just friends who are social. No, we, we need far more than that. The, we need believers that will ask us the hard questions. Friends who are intimately acquainted with our struggles and are praying for us. I can tell you, good friends are a gift from the Lord. They really are. Just this week, I was interacting with a few friends, and I was so encouraged. I, I was just confessing some things that I was struggling with, and and they, they spoke truth to me. They, they helped me with my wrong thinking and put me on the right track. See, your friendships are either leading you closer to the Lord or they, pay, they play a part in leading you astray. J.C. Ryle said it like this, Let us seek friends that will stir us up about our prayers, our Bible reading, our use of time, our souls, and our salvation. That's what builds godly traits. So lastly, to be useful to the master, be gentle and lowly. Be gentle and lowly. Timothy is facing some real opposition with these false teachers. They're constantly trying to get him to bite on foolish, ignorant controversies. They're always trying to pick a fight on matters of little of importance. In modern terms, we would call these individuals toxic relationships. that's, That's who he's dealing with. And of course, the temptation is, is just to write them off completely. But that's not what Paul says here. There is a time and a way to engage false teachers. Sometimes it's wise 
to, of course, distance ourselves from them. And he talks about that later in chapter 3. Other times, it's appropriately to gently correct. To gently correct. As useful vessels, God can use us to bring a heretic or even a toxic person to repentance. If we do what these verses say, we can be a useful instrument in the hand of God to restore someone. Every indication is that a believer who is walking with the Lord is a powerful weapon for good. But it requires us to be gentle and lowly. There's only one place in the gospel where Jesus specifically describes his heart. It's brief, but a profound statement in Matthew eleven twenty nine: I am gentle and lowly in heart. The essence of Jesus' heart is one of gentleness, kindness, tenderness, and humility. Our passage states that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Boy, that is so hard. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. See, he's given us the recipe for how to deal with difficult personalities. So, have you ever been in a heated argument? And you know how hard it is at this stage for you to respond rightly. People can be harsh, aggressive, judgmental, combative, and even mean. And it takes real humility to respond gently. Respond gently to him. Here's what it means to speak the truth in love. Listen to Paul Tripp. Gentleness means I don't damage the very person I'm trying to seek to help. I'm seeking to help. Gentleness doesn't mean compromising the truth. That's not what we're talking about. Rather, it means keeping the truth from being compromised by harshness and insensitivity. So there's this great balance there. This passage provides practical application for how to deal with almost any difficult relationship. Maybe you have a rebellious child and you've been, you've been butting heads with them. Or maybe you're in deep marital conflict with your spouse. Or maybe you have a co-worker or a relative that you're at odds with. With these individuals, the goal is not to win the argument, but to win the person, to save the soul. It's not us versus them. That's not where we're at. You're better off losing the argument and gaining a relationship. See, because ministry is loving others. The reason and motivation for why we should be gentle is because it's the heart of the gospel. God has been gentle and kind to us. He has been long-suffering and patient with us. God wins us over by his loving kindness. Romans 2, 4, Or do you not presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. A person is they're trapped in their sin. They're, they're captured by the devil, the text says. And God uses godly character and a gentle response to set them free. It's not a guarantee for sure. But, but, but here we have a, a process by which God has given us to win people over. Just imagine how the powerful effect we could have on our families, our neighbors, our community, if only we would practice this type of response to a world that's constantly arguing and fighting and going at each other. Well, what a difference Christianity could make to be gentle and kind 
This is why the gospel is so amazing. As sinners, we think Christ would, Christ would be sour towards us, right? He, Christ would be harsh with us. But the amazing thing is, is that Christ is gentle towards the sinner that comes to him for mercy. Won't you run to him today? It is these precious truths of the gospel that drive us to be useful to the master. Let's pray. Father, we, we are eternally grateful for these precious truths of your word and how amazed we are that you would use such people such as us, that you have uh, prepared us even for every good work if we will only cleanse ourselves from, from the, these sins that so easily trip us up. May we be the kind of people that even this morning would walk away and say, Hey, brother, hey, sister, I need help. I need the kind of help to walk with me, to encourage me, to help me with those things that I'm struggling with. May we be faithful to you so that we might be useful to you, to your honor and glory, in Christ's name.